All right, good morning. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And uh, some of you should go ahead and get your passports ready because I believe that God is going to be sending more people from this place around the world to uh, capitalize on the move of the gospel uh, because the scriptures are clear. The gospel is growing. The gospel is transforming lives. The gospel is reaching places that we're unaware of. And God is going to use many of you to go there and to continue to see the church established and to see people transformed and to see nations change. So uh, I'm excited for those in here who don't even know that they're going to go. Uh, but God knows that you're going to go, and we're here to equip you and send you out. So get your passport straight if you don't have one, uh, because there's lots of places for us to go to preach the gospel. So uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, we are going to continue on our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want to start that this morning by telling you something that some of you probably don't know about myself. Um, some of you may know, but you wouldn't believe me if I told you anyway. But I, I, I don't believe it myself sometimes, a- am, a, am a fan of, of popular physics. Uh, I don't know if any of you, are you, are you physics fans in here? I'm a fan of popular physics, which, which if you know me well enough, you would know how absurd that is, um, given that I can't do anything past basic arithmetic. Um, long division gets me fractions, I'm done. Um, I started cheating in math in high school and then ultimately caught up and uh, I couldn't get myself out of a wet bag. But um, I love popular physics. Um, and, and I love the men who, and the women who are pursuing popular physics today uh, for one big reason. Uh, they inspire me to, to not stop asking questions. Uh, I think some of the scientists that are out there right now, uh, one in particular who's my favorite, a guy named Brian Greene, uh, they are out there pursuing in, in their own quest to, to find what is the, the purpose for why we're here. They're, they're after answers to why does this universe even exist? Why do we exist? Is there really any understanding to, to why all of this actually has happened? And can we get our minds around all of that? They're on a pursuit to ask questions to try to figure out the, the answer to, to why. And I love that because it, it, they're real, I guess the best way to say it, they're real seekers, and that's a word that gets tossed around today a lot, and maybe even in the church gets tossed around a lot. But they're real seekers. There's a complexity to life, a problem in life, uh, something that they've gotten some angst about, and they're applying themselves to try to figure out what the answer to that thing is. And, and my favorite, a guy named Brian Greene, uh, you know, he, we're not related, I wish. Um, he educated at Harvard and Oxford and teaches mathematics and physics at Columbia right now. But he wrote this beautiful book um, because, called The Elegant Universe. Any of you ever seen, ever read The Elegant Universe? See, we're just going to have, we're, we're going to have fun. We're just, I'm going to put a video on for the rest of you. He wrote this great, this great book called The Elegant Universe, which was his attempt at, at what he is studying and what he calls the unified theory, this, this theory that will make sense of all of the mechanical and quantum physical theories that have been postulated throughout the last 20th century. And he's got this idea called the unified theory, which some of you may have heard of called, called string theory. But he believes that there's a way that we can understand how to put all of these ideas together so that they can make sense of the world around us that we might know why it even exists. That we might know why we're actually here. And if we can apply our minds and apply the best resources that we have within ourselves to understand this, we might just be able to answer the questions of why. And I love him because he can take all of that and take the math out and help it make sense to people like me. And I love him and I love what he's doing because he's pressing this issue of why, of what's the point, of, of what are we doing, what's the, what's the reason that we're here and, and can, we, can we really understand it? And as we go through this book, as we go through Ecclesiastes, ultimately that's the predicament and the problem that Solomon's trying to get himself around, get his head around, get his life around. What's, 
What's the reason? Why? Why? These guys like Solomon and these guys like some of these physicists and these guys like some of you never grew out of that childlike curiosity that always had to know why. Why is the sky blue? Why can't I have ice cream? And why can't you buy me those Legos? Whatever the why is, you know, when you got kids, the why never goes away. But most of us, we grow out of that curiosity and we get settled and content with particular answers and particular ideas. But, but these guys don't and Solomon isn't. And he's taking us along with him on his, on his journey and on his quest, the wisest and the wealthiest man to have ever lived on planet Earth. He's gonna take us on his quest to try to understand with his own resources and wisdom why. What's the point? I mean, is there really a point? I mean, you may not be a theoretical physicist, although you might be, I don't know. I'm certainly not. I mean, you may not be into physics, you may not be into mathematics, that stuff may not, not get you, but you're aware of the illusion. You live amidst the illusion and the struggle to really believe and to really wrestle with, if I just understood it a little bit more, if I just had a little more wisdom, a little more knowledge, then I can get that edge on life. If I could get a little more wisdom and a little more knowledge, then I ought to come out on top of things, right? I mean, that's what we believe, whether you admit it or not. I mean, that idea is the great savior that the rest of our culture is trying to get us just to, for the most part, bow our knee to, to believe that if we could just get enough wisdom in the right people, then this problem will go away. If we can just get enough wisdom and enough knowledge into these people, then there won't be so much violence over here. Then there won't be so much poverty over here. Then there won't be so much disease over here. The answer is if we could just get the right amount of wisdom and knowledge into the right people, then everything will be okay. And if you're honest, you wrestle with the same struggle and the same illusion too. I mean, all of us believe that if we were just a little bit smarter, if we understood just a little bit more, we could do better. That if we had just had a little more wisdom and a little more knowledge, we could figure out how to get that edge, how to come out on top, how to get just a step ahead of everybody else and a step ahead of what we're, we're trying to achieve and accomplish. The reality of it is you don't have to look very far to figure out how that is playing itself out. I mean, for all of the progress, for all that we've seen happen in the last two centuries, I mean, from going from what we can understand of flint rocks on a stone to chalk to pencils to computers and global communication and email, from walking with our feet to riding on a horse to pulling a cart to driving in a car, from getting a rocket and going into space to living in a space station out in the sky for all of the progress, for all the knowledge, for all of the supposed wisdom that we've been able to accomplish, how, how much more satisfied are we really? How much more satisfied really are we? I mean, for all of the progress and all of the accomplishment, and we'll come back to this a couple of times this morning, I don't want you to hear me saying ultimately in the end that that, that stuff is bad. But for all of the progress and all of the accomplishment, the 20th century, the century we just left a decade ago, will go down as one of the bloodiest centuries in the history of, of mankind. Lives lost, blood shed for the sake of progress, wisdom, insight knowledge. Sociologists are already saying that our time, our culture, our, our spot on the map of human history will go down, not so much in that sense as the bloodiest of American history, but arguably the most depressed, the most melancholic. All the knowledge, all the insight, 
all of the wisdom, how much more satisfied has it really gotten us? Like we said last week, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he did his great study of the United States and he wrote his history of this new nation, he said there seems to be this underlying melancholy in the midst of all of this abundance. In the midst of all the abundance now of insight and wisdom, there seems to be a melancholy, a dissatisfaction, a sadness, a struggle. That's what Solomon is trying to unpack for us. That's the angst that's driving him to this quest. And that's the angst that, if we're honest, all of us wrestle with. And so this morning, we're going to look at another aspect of Solomon's pursuit of trying to find the meaning, trying to find the purpose, trying to ask why, and trying to get an answer in a pursuit of wisdom, in a pursuit of knowledge, in a pursuit of insight. It, will more wisdom, will more knowledge, will it do what I need it to do? Will it satisfy that struggle, that angst, that melancholy that I find deep inside? That's what he's going to look at. That's what he's going to unpack. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes, where we're going to be this spring. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a bit of a heads up. We're going to go a little bit slower in Ecclesiastes than we have for the next few weeks going up to Easter. And then after Easter, we're going to take some bigger jumps um, and we're going to make our way through that book a little, bit, a little bit quicker because as we understand the first few chapters, we'll begin to see some of the same themes repeated and unpacked in a little more detail. And as you get yourself to Ecclesiastes, and we're going to start looking at Solomon's pursuit of meaning and purpose and, and significance through wisdom, I want you to understand that Ecclesiastes doesn't just start at chapter 1. To understand Solomon's pursuit, to understand what he's after and why he's after it and why he's looking into wisdom and insight and knowledge for the answers, you've got to understand that Ecclesiastes doesn't start there with Solomon, but it actually starts back in Genesis. You know, Ecclesiastes actually starts back in, in Genesis 1. You don't have to open there. I'll tell you the story. You're familiar with the story, but, but maybe not in the context to what Solomon is after. You know, in the beginning, God, he created all things that are and that exist, and we talk about that here all the time. He created everything that we know, the universe and all that is in it, and creating mankind. And he spoke those things into, into being, and he created this world that was beautiful, that was intricate, that was detailed, that was ordered, that was purposeful. And he created mankind, and he put them in the midst of the most beautiful part of that creation in the Garden of Eden. And he looked at man, and he said, everything that I've created is good. You, you are very good. And he said, now enjoy it. Enjoy what I have created. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over what I have created. Cultivate what I have created and where I have put you in this garden that it might spread out, that it might grow apart along the rest of all this universe. And as you enjoy me, as you trust me as the one who has given you all that you need, as you trust me as your creator and your provider, as you live in awe and dependence upon me for who I am to you, you will find joy. This is what God told Adam and Eve. As you depend upon me for your joy, as you depend upon me for your wisdom, as you depend upon me for your insight and understanding, I will never let you down. And every act of dependence upon God from Adam and Eve from that point forward was an act of trust and faith. And God said, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to trust me. I want you to, to, to depend on me for all that you need. And I want you to let that joy and let that satisfaction roll up into faith. Because here's what I'm going to say. I want you to enjoy all that I've created. Because I love you. Because I want you to trust me. And I, I know what is best for you. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to eat from that tree. 
I want you to take all that I have created. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to see all of the treasures of creation explode and expand across the earth. And I want you to find delight in me and joy in me in that. Don't eat of that tree. And from that moment, every time Adam and Eve walked by that tree and did not eat from it, they were expressing a satisfaction in God. They were expressing practically with their life a trust in his wisdom. They were expressing with their lives through obedience, a faith and a hope and a trust in God. You see, dependence upon God and obedience towards God, the way that he designed things, plays itself out in our life in acts of obedience. That's what obedience really is. It's just trusting God for who he is and and what he has said and, and, and what he's done. But that's not how the story played itself out, is it? We don't know how long they did that. We don't know how long they were satisfied in who God was for them. But we know at one point, the deceiver came. And as we talked about last week, he, he deceived Adam and Eve into exchanging the truth about God's wisdom and God's love for them for a lie. He deceived them into believing that they could be like God, that God was not giving them all that they needed for joy and satisfaction, that God, in fact, was holding out on them, that there was more for them to have, that God was keeping from them the very best things. And they exchanged that truth about who God was and, and the wisdom and the trust and the joy that he provided and the satisfaction that he provided. They exchanged that for a lie about him and they ate the fruit, didn't they? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate from that tree, that act, that very thing that they did was a public display of unbelief. That's what it was. Every day they walked by that tree and did not eat from it was a public display of faith and trust in God and his provision. At that moment that they took from that tree and they exchanged that reality of who God is for them for a lie about who he is, that was a public act of unbelief. When they ate from that tree, they were saying that God was wrong, that he was holding out on them, that the deceiver was right, that God had not given them everything that they needed, that God isn't enough to determine what is right and what is wrong that all of the wisdom needed to be satisfied, all of the wisdom needed to be filled with joy, it wasn't to be found in God. He was holding out. And so they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and took upon themselves the right to know what was right and what was wrong, the right to pursue wisdom apart from a relationship with God. See, the one thing that we find in Genesis chapter one is that wisdom is found in a direct relationship of dependence upon God. He had promised to be for us all that we needed, He had promised to be for us all that we needed for satisfaction and purpose and joy. And that act of disobedience, that act of unbelief was a saying that you don't have all that we need and I'm going to take from myself the right to find wisdom apart from you. Before that, they found everything they needed in God. They were satisfied. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to be satisfied? truly satisfied with every fiber of your being, not a part of you dissatisfied, not a part of you anxious and struggling, trying to figure out what else is out there, but satisfied. That's, that was Adam and Eve prior to this exchange. But now they thought that wisdom was to be found outside of a relationship of trust and dependence upon God. That is the context 
for Solomon's quest. Solomon is going to take that thread on the sweater, that, that act of disobedience and unbelief, that initial exchange of truth for a lie, and he's going to take that thread and he's just going to pull it. And he's going to pull it as far as he can. And throughout this entire book, throughout his entire journey, that sweater is just going to unravel. And we're going to see the logical implications and, 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 and things that we can expect as we continue upon that same journey. Genesis 1 and the exchange of truth for a lie and the desire to pursue satisfaction and wisdom apart from relationship with God is the context that Solomon is going to play out his search on. And so as we get into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon has already started his quest and he's already tried to see, is there something more out there? Can I find it in, in pleasure? And we talked about that last week. And he applied himself to the illusion that I could just go and enjoy more and get more and have more, and then I'll find meaning. But self-indulgence was never the way that we were created to find satisfaction. The self was never created to be satisfied by itself. And we could never find enough things out there to fill the struggle and the dissatisfaction that we found in Solomon. Instead of all the things that I've had, all the things that I've done, all the things that I've acquired, all the things that I've experienced, I kept nothing from my heart in this. And it was all striving after the wind. It was all vanity. It was all enigmatic. It was all like a toddler chasing the bubbles in the wind, trying to capture them no avail. Every time we would get close and think we had it, it would pop right in our hands. And so this morning, chapter two, verse 12, he is gonna turn his eyes back to a place that he started and he's gonna return to consider again something he considered in the beginning. And he's gonna look at his next, we're gonna look at his next attempt to find satisfaction, his next attempt to find meaning and purpose in life and he's gonna go after it through wisdom. Wisdom that can be had from the human mind and the human experience. Wisdom that's to be found under the sun. In the context that was set off in the beginning with Adam and Eve, wisdom that can be found outside of a relationship with God. What is the best that the human mind can understand? What is the best that the human experience can draw from? He is going to pursue the same questions that the great scientists and physicists and philosophers of today are pursuing and the same ones that we wrestle with, struggle with, even late at night. So chapter 2. Verse 12, Solomon says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now he's going to tell us what he found, and it's going to be surprising and not so surprising at the same time. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is in more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. So here's what he's going to say. When it comes to life, on the plain fact of reality, it's better to have wisdom than to be foolish. It's better to gain as much wisdom and insight that you can get in this life than it is to go around life like a fool. And when he's talking about wisdom, remember, he's talking about human wisdom, human insight. He's talking about things that we can understand and comprehend with our own mind and experience in our own life. And he's saying that the insight and the wisdom that we can gather through things like science and, and sometimes every now and then with, with Dr. Phil and some of the books that are in the bookstores and just the human understanding of life and, and wisdom and how to walk forward in this life to the best of our abilities, that's better than being a fool. It's better than being a fool. He said it's better, being, better than being a fool in the same way that light is better than darkness. 
You see, at least the person who gets some wisdom, at least the person who gets some insight, can look out over the world. He can look at the life that he's living in the wreckage of the world that he finds himself in, and he can make his way through it. He at least has his eyes open. He at least can see the realities of what's going on. And like Solomon said, the more he sees, the more frustrated he gets. Because the more wisdom we have about how life really works on this earth, the more frustrated we actually get. Because what's crooked, we can't actually make straight. And what's lacking, we can't actually fill. But at least you can see it. And at least you can navigate around it. While the fool is left with no, with no light at all. And he finds himself bumping through the realities of life. Being careened around life from all the, the struggles and, and, and tragedies. And, and the aspect of just living in a world that's been destroyed by the realities of sin. At least being wise is better than living in the dark. Practically, you understand what I'm saying if, and what Solomon is saying if you have kids. I mean, if you've got kids, you know what it is to turn all the lights out in the house. Be really late at night. This is what happens in our house. We'll get in bed. Kids are asleep. Lights are out. We'll lay in bed. And my wife will say, did we lock the front door? And I'll try to remember. But no matter how hard I try and how certain I am that I locked that door, I can't ever say with, posit- with, with certainty, yeah, it's, it's locked. And so I get up. And I try to go all the way downstairs to the front door to lock the door without turning your lights on. And every single time I try to go down the stairs, around to the left, to the front door, there is always a mysterious Lego on the floor. And in my bare feet, in the middle of the night, trying to be quiet, I step with all of my weight on a Lego. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's better to at least have some lights on, at least to see all the things that are out there in front of you, at least to see how broken the world actually is, to have some wisdom and insight on how it actually works so that you can navigate around it, to turn the light on, to walk around the Lego. It's better than not having any light on at all when the fool doesn't even see the Lego. The fool didn't turn the light on to go lock the front door. He didn't have a light switch. I at least had a white switch. Maybe I'm more foolish than he is. So Solomon's saying at one, at one level, it's, it's just wiser to have insight. In fact, it's not just wiser to have insight in the sense that there's light versus darkness. Did you see what he said about the fool? The fool doesn't even have eyes. So at least those who gain some wisdom have, have eyes. Not only do they have light to see, but they have the capacity for vision. The fool is not even just dark. He didn't have eyes. The darkness isn't just around him, it's actually inside of him. His capacity to even see has been diminished. And so Solomon says, with all of my wisdom and all the wisdom that I have attained, and he was the wisest man to have ever lived, with all of that human wisdom, at least it's better to go through life with a little bit of something versus none at all. And that's not earth shattering, is it? I mean, does that surprise you? I mean, do you disagree with Solomon there? I mean, that's not really surprising. The part that always gets us is the next part. The next part is the one that that we always kind of struggle with and that you wouldn't have expected Solomon to say. Look at verse 14. He said, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Here's the thing. It's better to be wise than a fool. It's better to live with some light on about the world around you than to live in darkness. But here's the thing. No matter how wise you get and how foolish you remain, you're going to die. The same event happens to you both. No matter how smart you get, And no matter how foolish you remain, both of you are going to die. 
So what advantage is it to really being wise? This is what he's going to struggle with. If we're both going to die, the wise man and the fool, what's the point in being smart? You see, death is the great equalizer. And this is the first time that Solomon's going to deal with this issue, and he's going to deal with it a lot through the book. Death is the great equalizer. I mean, think about it this way. I'm trying to make it as, as clear as, as possible. Stephen Hawking will stick on the, on the level of physicist and scientist, arguably one of the most brilliant men to have ever lived, at least in our lifetime. Brilliant scientist, body fallen apart by Lou Gehrig's disease, still one of the most brilliant scientists to have ever lived, one of the smartest men to have ever lived. When it's all said and done, and he takes his last breath and goes into the ground, his wisdom will have gotten him no more than my son who died after eight hours. That's what Solomon is saying. Smartest man arguably to have ever lived. All of the treasures of wisdom that the human mind can gather. When it's all said and done and that last breath comes, he got no further along. It gained him no advantage than my son who breathed for eight hours. That's what Solomon is getting after. Death ultimately will make fools of us all in this sense. And he's struggling with this. He's having a hard time with this. This idea that one day all of these things didn't really get me any advantage. I mean, that's what he's after, remember, from the beginning. His pursuit and his quest is to figure out what meaning and purpose and advantage there is in life, what's really lasting, what's really purposeful. And here's the enigma for Solomon. Here's the struggle. Get as much as you can and have as little as humanly possible in the end. You both die the same. And that's pressing in on Solomon. It's weighing down on Solomon. And this is a reality that the rest of us, if we're honest, at least in this culture and in this century, we go through our life trying to, to deny and to distance ourselves from. I mean, we go to great lengths in this culture to distance ourselves from the idea that one day we're going to deal with the fact that there's not going to be another breath behind the one we just took. I mean, we've got procedures and surgeries and we've got all kinds of science that we think we can get our heads around to try to prolong this idea that that death awaits and we live under the illusion that if we can just get more and understand more and apply our minds to it a little bit more we can further the distance between death and ultimately come to a place where maybe we can even get rid of it itself those physicists asking those questions listen to this one of them I read said, death is an imposition on the human race and no longer acceptable. Man has all but lost his ability to accommodate himself to personal extinction. He must now proceed to physically overcome it. In short, we must apply ourselves to kill death, to put an end to our own mortality as a consequence of being born. We go to great lengths, whether we can articulate it like him or not to distance ourselves from the reality that at one point there is going to be a time when there is not another breath behind the one that we just took. And so Solomon's gonna say the same fate happens to Stephen Hawking and my son Owen. Smarter or eight hours, they're both gonna get put in the ground. And what gain did it really get him to be this wise? And he's gonna take that idea and he's gonna pull that thread out a little bit more because here's the thing. All of us can come to some kind of intellectual ascent to the idea that we're gonna die. There's mortality. They're cemeteries. We see them. We can know in our mind, yeah, you know, life comes to an end. But all of a sudden, Solomon's going to make it really, really personal. 
death gets really, really personal. And we like to at least acknowledge maybe, if we try to push it away from us, we'll at least acknowledge that it exists. But when it comes to our life and our struggle and our ultimate end, man, we try to get as much of a restraining order on that thing as possible. And Solomon says in verse 15, this is what I said in my heart. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. It's one thing to talk about death. It's another thing to deal all together with your own death and your own mortality. You're right now, thousands of miles away, thousands of soldiers are dealing with this reality every single day. And we can just turn off the TV. Every single day they wake up dealing with the fact that people don't just die. They might walk out of their tent and it might be the end. They might drive down this road and turn this corner, and that might be it for them. You see, as much as we can accommodate the idea of death, we don't like to deal with the personal implications of it. For us, it's an imposition that we would love one of these physicists to imply their minds to, to eradicate. If they could just overcome this idea that I'm actually going to have to die. But Solomon doesn't stay content with pat answers and, and superficial understandings. Said in verse 15, this is what I said, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So when you come to grips with your own mortality, one day you're gonna take a breath and there's not gonna be another one behind it how wise is it then to chase the illusion that we can better ourselves, we can get ahead, we can get an edge on life, we can overcome the, the, the struggles of this life with our mind and with our wisdom? How satisfying is, is that illusion when in the end, if I'm going to die and the person who doesn't gain that same kind of wisdom is gonna die and we're both gonna be the same, death brings a disadvantage and a destruction to every advantage we, th we thought that we had in this life. It's the great equalizer. The illusion of human wisdom is that you can make your life successful. It's better than folly. But it doesn't actually get you the good life. It doesn't actually get you the ideal life. It doesn't actually fill the voids of satisfaction and purpose and meaning. It can't do it. Because as smart as you get, as wise as you get, whether you're into book smarts or whether you're into street smarts, as wise and as smart as you get, in the end, your wisdom has not been able to overcome death. Your wisdom has not been able to overcome death. And that reality puts an end to every advantage you think you've got over this world. It puts an, it puts a, an end to every category, every judgment, every box that you put other people in that you think gains you any kind of superiority over them, death makes a mockery of all those things. Because in the end, that person that you struggle with and that person that you're not is lying right there next to you in the ground. Death puts an end to all the advantages that you think your wisdom, your insight, your knowledge, your understanding has gained you in this world. This is what's driving Solomon absolutely crazy. It's what James says in the New Testament, that your life is, 
It's just a breath. It's just a vapor. It's going by like that. And we get so caught up trying to chase the illusions. The illusions that I can get this and then I'll be happy. Well, that didn't work. The illusion that if I just know this, I can overcome this and I can get the edge here. If my kids can just know this and do this, then they'll get the edge over here. We all just think if we just knew more, could be smarter, then life will be better. Solomon said in the end, when we're all painted up and put in the ground, that illusion proves itself to be nothing but vanity, nothing but vapor. You blink and decades are gone. You blink and decades are gone. And the older you get, the faster they go. And are we going to continue to chase the illusions? Are we going to continue to chase the illusions? Saw verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. This is what really gets him. This is what really gets under Solomon's skin. Can deal with the fact that when it's all said and done, the wise and the fool both die the same. And that's frustrating. Why should I even get smarter? And why should I even pursue wisdom if I die and I'm the same as the fool? But here's what gets him. This is what really gets him. And it's what gets us if we're really honest with it. He says, when I die... For all that wisdom, nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to remember. There is going to be no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten how the wise die just like the fool. The legacy, the memory, the impact, the change, ultimately, as he saw in the first chapter, sun rises and the sun sets. Wind's going to blow east, the wind's going to blow west. Morning's going to come, night's going to come. Rivers are going to flow into the ocean. They're going to return back to where they came. They're going to do it again. All that stuff you've chased and you've worked so hard to be known by, to get that advantage over, to leave your mark on, it's going to be washed away like footprints at the sea. Time is going to come and do what it does to all of the illusions that we live under. And it's going to be wiped away. And so Solomon finds himself back to where he started. Verse 17. So I hated life. I mean, at least he's honest. I mean, at least he's honest. So I'm disgusted with my life because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity. It's all enigmatic. It's all got a purpose in there somewhere, but I can't figure it out. No matter how hard I try, it remains an enigma to me. What the purpose is and, and what gain or what advantage it has, I just don't know. I'm sure there's some in there, but when it's all said and done, we're all going to die, and what's the point? It's all vanity. It's just like little kids chasing bubbles in the wind, thinking that they can grab all of them only to touch it and have it pop. It's just like striving after the wind. Death ultimately makes fools of all of us in this sense. We can try as hard as we can to live with our eyes wide open to the world, just like Solomon. Eyes wide open to the realities of the world around us, the struggles and the wreckage that we can navigate our way through. But ultimately, in the end, the illusion of getting a wisdom that can exceed that understanding, that can change that reality. Ultimately, that illusion is shown to be foolish. Ultimately, death makes us all fools wandering around in the dark. So here's the question. If that's the case, 
if Solomon is showing us the realities of life under the sun and the illusion of the pursuit of the wisdom that we think can get an edge over the reality of the world, is there a way out of it? Is there a way out of it or is this just the way it is? Is there a way out of that illusion? Are we supposed to settle in what Solomon is saying and just be disgusted with the life around us and decide whether or not we're going to have our eyes open to the wreckage so that maybe we can navigate around and, and suffer the fewest bumps and the fewest bruises? Or is there a way out? Or is the illusion all that we have to hold on to? See, Solomon is pointing us towards the fulfillment of this story. There is something that we have to understand about Solomon, and that's that he didn't have the whole story figured out. The gospel writer John will say that there is a light. There is a light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness, the foolishness of our attempt to live in the illusions of our own capacities, the darkness that comes by us buying into the illusions that we can somehow get a hold of life and suck out of it the meaning and the purpose that we were intended to have in a dependent relationship upon God, the darkness that sets in because of our sin of trying to make for ourselves what was not ours to make, a light has come into that darkness and that darkness, that sin, that illusion, it hasn't overcome it. All of our attempts to take for ourselves have not overcome a light that has shined in the darkness. So if you've got your Bibles, look at John 1. Maybe it'll come up and we'll look at this real quick because there's a way out of this illusion because if there's one that we're going to get caught in outside of the consumerism that we talked about last week, it's going to be this idea that we're smart enough to beat this deal. John 1, he says it this way, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Here, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Listen to this. But to all who receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that word, that light became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of of grace and truth. Who's John talking about? Who is that light that has shined in the darkness and the darkness has yet to overcome it? Who is that light that enlightens all men who believe upon who he is? Who is that? Jesus. Jesus is the way out of the illusion. In fact, in John 8, verse 12, he proclaimed to the church, to the Pharisees, to the religious people of the day, I, me, I am the light of the world. Right here in John 1, verse 9, he, John says, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world, and he was in it, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, and the people received him not. He goes on to say that that light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world, but we loved our foolishness and our darkness. We loved our illusions, John said in John three nineteen more than we loved him. We loved our illusions, and we loved our darkness but there is a light that has come in that can set us free from the slavery and the foolishness and the darkness 
of these illusions. Jesus has come into the darkness so that our sin, the sin that created the separation from him and this darkness that sits over our ability to understand and experience the joy and the satisfaction we were created for, as it's set in, he has come into that and he's actually overcome it. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So yeah, there's an answer. There is a way out of the illusion. There is a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. There is a wisdom that leads to joy and satisfaction and that's a wisdom that was meant to be found in a relationship of dependence upon God. A a relationship of dependence and surrender upon the one true source of wisdom. There is a joy and a purpose and a satisfaction that can be found in life and a wisdom that exceeds the wisdom of men that brings light into the life that we live, but it's only to be found in a relationship with the one who really is wisdom. The problem is we have these continued efforts to try to figure it out ourselves. We continue to try to keep ourselves from the very thing that will get us what it is we're so desperately after. And so if true wisdom True wisdom is to be found. A relationship has to be restored. This is what Solomon was missing in Ecclesiastes. He was living out the reality of what Adam and Eve set in motion, the the separating of a relationship between man and God, and now the pursuit for understanding and meaning and satisfaction in the world without God to find the wisdom and the joy that Solomon is looking for. A relationship has to be restored. As we go searching for all these things, as we echo and relive Solomon's quest of searching for all of these things, the gospel that we understand and understand the story through is that as we search, we've actually been found. We think we're out there looking for what we don't have and what can bring us what we want, but the reality of it is that we've actually been found. We go looking for something, not realizing all along that we've actually been found by someone. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what John was saying in chapter 1. Look at verse 16 16 and 17. From the fullness of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. For though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Jesus has made known to us the true realities of who God is to us, that the relationship that our sin severed can be made right again. In fact, Paul will tell the church in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the very image of God in whom all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are to be found. That to find what it is we're looking for, the wisdom that we think we can get in our own minds and in our own lives and in our own experience, that wisdom can truly only be found as the relationship is restored to God and Jesus has been the way to make that possible. See, God didn't give us this system of information that we have to understand and know who he is. God didn't give us this set list of things that would prove to us his existence and what his nature and what his character is like. He revealed himself to us through his son. He didn't tell us that I can reason my way to him. He didn't give me a set of propositions that I have to understand through logic and reason and that as I do that and my human mind can grasp that idea that I can get sent in my understanding and wisdom to God and know him and be reconciled to him. He revealed himself. He reveals himself to us through his son that we might know him and be able to be restored to him. Jesus came and he lived and he suffered under the illusions that we all chase. He suffered under the the wake 
of the destruction that our illusions for pursuing pleasure and knowledge and power and success and all the things we think we need, he suffered under the wake of those things. He did that so that he could restore us to a relationship with God so that what we severed in the beginning and separated ourselves from by taking upon ourselves the decision and the right that we thought we had to determine things for ourselves, he has restored that relationship. He has come and made that relationship right again. And to some people, this seems absolutely crazy. I mean, the idea that Jesus, that God revealed himself through a man, lived on this earth, lived in the midst of all the wreckage of life that we lived in, died to pay the price for our sins, and those sins can be put on him in such a way that he can then offer us forgiveness and righteousness in the place of our sin and be reconciled to God is absolutely foolish. And the idea that that is where real wisdom comes from and real wisdom and insight and joy and purpose and satisfaction to be found, that's where it comes from. That's foolish. I mean, that's absolutely foolishness to most people. I mean, there are physicists that I, I read and I love whose pursuit in life is to try to figure out how to understand how foolish that is. That just can't be comprehended. It's an insult to the human mind. It's an insult to the human experience, but we got to do this. First Corinthians you know where I'm going. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Paul said, the word of the cross, the word of Jesus, the word of this light that shined in the midst of our darkness, this light that is the light of men, that all of those who receive him and believe in his name can be made right and restored to God and the wisdom that comes from a relationship with God can be restored into your life and soul. That, the wisdom of Jesus and the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I mean, where is the one who's wise? Where is he? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the illusion that we can go and, pers and pursue wisdom in our own minds and our own life and gain what it is we're looking for. For that pursuit, it's absolutely foolish. God's answer to the frustration and the separation and the angst and the why and the what's the point and the why does it matter and what can really be found and what's it really worth and what's it all about, his answer to that came in sending a Jewish carpenter born to a virgin who lived a perfect life before him and who willingly gave himself up to die a horrible, painful crucifixion on a Roman cross. And that is foolish, foolish to the wisdom of the world. It's foolishness to the wisdom of the wise. But to God, but to God, and to those who believe, it's the power to be transformed. It's the beginning of real wisdom. Because you know why it's foolishness to the wise? Why it's foolishness to the worldly wisdom? It's foolishness, Paul will say in verse 29, because it absolutely empties any ground you have for boasting before God and other men. Smart as you get, it doesn't matter. Because you couldn't reason your way to this. As successful as you get, get all the stuff that Solomon had the best that you can. When it all comes down to it, it leaves you nothing before God. The wisdom of the cross 
and real wisdom coming through a restoration of a relationship through God from the crucified Savior is foolishness to humanity because it takes away all room you have for making something of yourself. And Paul said that, though, is the wisdom of God. That, though, is the way that wisdom is restored to our life, that we might find ourselves satisfied, that we might find ourselves filled with joy. You see, we can call it foolish. I mean, you can listen to me and you can read the Bible and you can call that idea foolish. You can say the, the, the good news of what we call the gospel, foolishness. My mind is too intelligent to deal with that kind of nonsense. And you can call it foolish and you can maintain your pride or you can call it wisdom and you can die with Jesus, but only one of those two ways leads to any kind of real life. That's what it comes down to. You can call it foolish. You can say you're smarter than that. I'm too smart for that kind of thing. And you can continue to live in the arrogance and the pride that says you can determine for yourself what things really matter. Or you can call it wisdom. And you can die with Christ. But only one of them, only one of them leads to life. And see, in the church, I'm not talking to people who are out there. We are just as prone, if not more prone, to live under these illusions as anybody else. To live under the illusion that if we just know more, get more, be more, we'll have an edge on this thing. That we'll come out on top of everybody else. We just turn the script a little around a little bit and say we know a little bit more about morality. The wiser we get about morality and what we should do and shouldn't do, then we'll be better than everybody else. The more we know, the more systems we get, the more structures we get, then we'll be all right. We're just as foolish, just as ignorant, just as culpable of believing those things as everybody else. But rather than walking around with blinders on, rather than walking around in the midst of this illusion, looking down at the world, seeing what can we figure out and how can we make something out of it and how can we turn this thing right here into something that makes us something, Paul said, why don't you lift your eyes? Quit settling your eyes and your minds on things below. Quit focusing your gaze and your attention and your hope and your trust on things below. Look at a wisdom that's above the sun. Turn your eyes above the things that are above. Set your mind not on things below, not your hopes, not your dreams, not your pursuit, not your passions, not all that you can get out of life that will satisfy all that you need. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes above the sun. And when you do, what do you see? You see Jesus sitting on a throne. Lift your eyes to things above. Don't settle your eyes on the illusions that live below. Lift your eyes and you see Jesus, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, with whom, Paul will say, our lives are hidden. Our lives are hidden with Jesus in God. Our lives are encrypted with Jesus in God. And so while those who continue to chase these illusions find that in the end they are to no gain, that death makes fools of everybody who lives in those illusions, there is a way out of the illusion in such a sense that joy and wisdom and satisfaction and purpose can be found in this life before the grave and your life is remembered and extended and satisfied beyond the grave. There is a way out, out, of the illusion. But we can continue to choose to live in it, continue to choose to live in the illusion, that our our mind can get us what it is that we really need, and we can continue on in the folly of darkness, or, or, we can die with Christ, 
We can die with Christ and experience real life. Now, I'm going to pray in just a second, but I want to say this. I rarely ever end with disclaimers, but I'm going to end with one here. Don't walk out of here having heard me say that human intelligence and wisdom is a bad thing because Paul didn't say that. It's not a bad thing at all. The mind is an unbelievably amazing creation of God and gift of grace from God to us. It's unbelievable. The science behind the mind and how the brain works and our capacity to understand things, it's amazing. Don't hear me, walk, don't walk out of here having heard me say, okay, we're to set our mind on things above that Jesus is a real source of wisdom and insight, so I'm gonna turn my mind off to the world around me. I'm gonna turn my mind off to how things actually work. Wisdom really isn't to be found in how to live and work this life out. So I'm gonna take my brain out and put it in a jar at the door when I walk into church. That's a horrible reputation that we have. A horrible reputation that we have is that you have to actually ignore your intelligence for the sake of faith. That our mind is something to be discarded and, and put aside for the sake of true wisdom and true understanding. That's not what I'm saying at all. The mind is an unbelievably beautiful gift of grace that comes from God. But we're to understand that the real wisdom that brings us what it is that we're most looking for underneath all of these things comes in a relationship of dependence and submission upon God. And then we use the gifts that he's given us like our mind to understand the world that he's put us in so that it rolls back up into worship of him. That's what it's for. He's given us the, the job to go and to make much of the world that he has created that as we do, it will turn our gaze towards him as the creator. That's where real wisdom comes from. So don't hear me saying you walk out of here and turn your brain off. Don't turn your brain off because of who we are and because of the relationship that we have with God that's been restored through Jesus, we should be the most passionate to pursue and understanding of the world that he's given us. We should be the most passionate to apply the mind that he has given us, the grace that he has given us to understand the creation and the mandate he's given us to cultivate it. We should be the most passionate to go out there and do that. We should be the most critical of thinkers about the world around us. We should be the ones living with our eyes the widest the most open to the world around us. We should be the ones in the front side of pursuing an understanding of the world around us that it might roll up into worship towards him. The problem as Solomon has seen, the problem as we all have experienced is we take that unbelievably gift, that amazing gift of grace that he's given us in our mind and we focus it down upon ourselves. We focus it down upon the world around us and we do not let it compel us towards worship. For that to be the case, we have to understand that wisdom is not found in our brain, but it's found in a relationship with God. So don't walk out of here hearing me say, turn your brain off. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's a good thing. Human wisdom is a good thing. It just has unbelievably serious limitations. Serious limitations. And the illusion that we wrestle with is thinking that our human wisdom can get to a place where we can fix what's crooked, where we can make straight what's crooked, where we can fill what's lacking. And what Solomon is saying is that you can't. You can't do it. You weren't meant to do it. Don't live in the illusion that you can actually do it. You can't. But you can get out of the illusion. And wisdom can be found. And joy can be found. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for difficult, uh, for difficult books like Ecclesiastes. Thank you for men like Solomon 
who weren't satisfied with, uh, with pat answers to things, but who truly sought out an understanding of the world, who truly sought out an understanding of you, who wrestled through the implications of life in a sinful world, and, and Lord, who, who you inspired to write books like Ecclesiastes. This is a hard book. It's a tough book for my heart. It's a tough book for our souls. It's a tough book for the world that we live in. Lord, help us to see more than anything that we get caught up in illusions, that we get caught up in the very things that Solomon went after, that we're not different, that we think that we can reason our way out of things, that we can make straight what's been made crooked. Help us to see that we do this, that we live in this illusion so that we can get out so that we can pursue you, so that we can turn and surrender ourselves to the real light that has overcome the darkness that our illusions leave us in. This is a hard book from my heart. This is a hard book for us, but God, make it a fruitful book. Make it a fruitful book. Bring a right perspective upon our life and a right perspective upon our experiences in the world around us. Lord, help it to turn our eyes towards you. Help us to feel the futility of the illusions so that we pursue what can truly satisfy Let the weight, Father, let the weight of what Solomon is struggling with sit on us and let us find ourselves dissatisfied with the life that we live apart from you. Help my heart to feel dissatisfied in my trust and dependence upon myself because I wasn't meant to satisfy myself. And let that drive me and let it drive us to you. Thank you for hard words, Lord. Let it produce a soft heart. Thank you for hard words in your scripture that soften our hearts to you. Lord, may you receive glory. May our lives roll up in worship towards you as we surrender ourselves in dependence to you and, and truly pursue that which is real wisdom. Amen.